Thank you, worship team. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name's Sam Kennedy. Um, I'm the campus minister for RUF, the Reformed University Fellowship at UNCW, and um, uh, was blessed to serve on the church staff here for five years and love this church, love uh, this, this family, and uh, am so honored to get to be here that Paul would share the pulpit with me while he's away, and, um, but he will be back next week, I'm told, so that's good. Everyone's happy. Nancy especially is happy, I think. Um, Our passage this morning is uh, found uh, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And uh, if you want to look on with the Pew Bible in the kind of seat in front of you, uh, it's going to be on page 983. Again, Colossians chapter 1, starting um, in verse 15 on page 983. And uh, this passage that we're going to read this morning is almost like a little hymn. It's a little song, and some of your Bible translations may even kind of set it off in verse like a a song. It's a song about Jesus. And Paul, as you'll remember, has been writing this letter to this church in Colossae, and he's kind of started with this introductory greeting, and then he's told them how he's praying for them and all the different things that he's thankful for about this church. And then almost in the middle of it, he starts talking about what Jesus has done, and he kind of shifts gears, and he just kind of busts out into song. And that's what we have uh, before us this morning. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, all the way to verse 20. Let's stand, shall we, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You may be seated. Let's... Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we have read your word. We have sat and reflected upon your word. Would you now make your word come alive to us? Would you cause it to speak, um, not just to our ears, but to our hearts? Would you write your law on our hearts? Would you help us to see Jesus in it? We ask these things in his name, amen. Uh, you're going to want to keep your Bibles open if you can, uh, or your phone or whatever you know you use to look at the scripture on, because uh, we'll just be going right through the text there, and you're going to want to have it to um, reference and make sure that I didn't just make up everything that I'm saying, that it's actually there. Around 125 years ago, uh, in 1893, 
they held the famous World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And it was a really a ridiculous number of people came to it. It was about uh, 21 million people visited this uh, World's Columbian Exposition. I think we call it the World's Fair now. And among the features of the uh, Columbian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religions. And what this was is all the representatives of the world's religions met together to kind of share their best points. And even maybe they thought they would come up with a new world religion. Well, the evangelist D.L. Moody was working in Chicago at the time, and he saw this as a great chance for evangelism. So Moody kind of got his team together, his evangelists and his teachers, and he assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city, like in a a theater or uh, in a concert hall and then uh, in clubs, and um, even they erected a circus tent. And uh, some of his supporters were saying, okay, D.L., because I think they called him D.L., they they would say, okay, D.L., Let's just attack, you know, all the false ideas of these other religions. Let's get, you know, because all the religions of the world are here. So let's just kind of, you know, you can kind of break it all down and, and talk about how they're wrong. And then we'll be able to win them over to the gospel. But this is what D.L. Moody decided to do. He said, instead, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that everyone is going to turn to him. I'm going to focus on lifting Jesus up rather than, you know, attacking all these errors. I'm going to lift up Jesus. And if people would see him as he is, peerless, supreme, beautiful, all-sufficient, that message clearly presented would be more compelling than the best philosophical arguments that he could make. And it was. Uh, This Chicago campaign, as they called it, is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's entire life. And thousands of people came to Christ. D.L. Moody knew that the question that actually divides all the world's religions, and it even divides real Christianity from the kind of, you know, fake false versions of Christianity, is this question, who is Jesus? Is he God in human flesh? I'll kind of tip my hand. That's what I think. That's what I believe the Bible says. Or is uh, he not God in the flesh? Is he some kind of lesser being, a kind of JV God, a kind of emanation uh, from from God? Uh, Did he actually rise from the dead? Was he born to a virgin named Mary? Or is he a myth? Uh, Is he some kind of, you know, a superhero or figment of our imagination? Uh, Who really is Jesus? This isn't just an interesting question to discuss. This actually has real implications for our lives. The way we answer this question has life and death consequences for us. And there is only one right answer. There's no partial credit. There's a thousand wrong answers to this question, and there's one true answer. One writer... um, Uh, reminded me as I was reading this week that Paul is writing to this church in Colossae who had received the true message of the gospel. And then people were coming in with an alternate kind of version of the gospel. It was kind of like fan fiction about who Jesus is. And so they were saying, hey, you, you know, you started well with Christ. 
but we're going to take you deeper in the faith. And that deeper knowledge and that deeper experience of God's power, you're going to be able to get it by following after certain teachings and rituals that, you know, Paul and Epaphras and, you know, uh, the gospels and the Bible, that, that doesn't talk to you about, but we've got the kind of secret methods that you need. The people weren't really questioning whether or not Jesus was Lord. They were questioning whether Jesus was enough. And the apostle Paul responded to this false teaching from the very moment that he opened his letter, greeting the Colossians. And he builds up to this moment right now, this kind of song that he breaks into. And the subject of the song is Jesus, about how he is enough. And we need to hear Paul's words this morning because we need a solid answer to some really important questions like this. Is there anyone out there who's actually big enough to make sense of your life? Is there someone who can comprehend you? Is there someone bigger than all the pain that you feel who sees it and knows it? And if so, is that person Jesus or is it someone else? Uh, Can Jesus handle all of it? Or do you have to kind of supplement Jesus with another, another kind of savior, another religion, another practice? Can he hold all of you in his hands? Can he take care of you? Can he really handle it? Is he enough? In short, Paul is trying to show us that if we want to make sense of our lives, the first step is seeing Jesus in his proper place. And that place is first place. He needs to be preeminent. First place, ruling, in control. And if we will see him in control, we'll be able to make sense of everything else. Paul's going to show us that Jesus is in control in two ways. He's in control of all of creation. And then he's also in control of all of the new creation. Whether things in this life or things in the life to come, Jesus has it all handled. All right, let's dive into the passage. Look in verse 15, kind of the first sections in verse 15 through verse 17. And we're gonna see Jesus is in control over all of creation. He's the ruler and the controller and the creator of the entire universe. This is how he says it in verse 15. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. There's two bold statements there that Paul's making in verse 15. First, Jesus is in control of creation because all of God is in Christ. Jesus is, as Paul says, the image of the invisible God. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. We look at this sun and we see the God who cannot be seen. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, sometimes we think of an image as something that's kind of flat and degraded, right? An image, like a flat picture of something, isn't as good as the real thing. Uh, We can think of like a copy of a copy that you make, um, uh, you know, on a a Xerox machine. Do y'all remember Xerox machines? But, you know, you make copies and copies and images of images, and then they get degraded, right? Uh, They get distorted, They're lesser than the real thing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The image, Paul's trying to say, 
the image of God is the fullest and the clearest and the best picture we have of God. To be completely anachronistic, Jesus is the full resolution picture of God. He's the 4K or, you know, 4,000,000 K. K means a thousand. <laughs> Four million K. Resolution picture of who God is. We're not going to get any better than looking at Jesus. And if you actually take it together with the rest of the letter, you're going to see that the image of God language means that Jesus has all the godness of who God is stuffed into a human body. In, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, In him, Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Here's a question to test if you've understood this. Who is more God? Is God the Son more God? Is God the Father more God? Is God the Spirit more God? Who's the most God of all three? No one is. They're all God. <laughs> They're all fully God. God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, this is what the New City Catechism says, all three, three persons are fully and equally God, the same in substance, equal in power, and in glory. Jesus is not less powerful or less glorious than God the Father. The Holy Spirit is not less powerful or less glorious than Jesus. The three are each fully God. When you come to Jesus... You come to someone who has all the fullness of the glory of God dwelling in him. That's unfathomable. The image of God language here means that the incarnation of Jesus is God pulling out absolutely all the stops to give us the clearest, fullest picture of himself possible. Jesus is the image of God. The fullness of God is in him. And the second bold statement is that Jesus is in charge of creation because all of the universe belongs to him. That's what Paul means by saying the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here means authority. It means uh, rank. This is inheritance language. The firstborn was the child who inherited. It was the child who took over the kingdom. It was the one who got everything. Paul is saying Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the first in rank. He's the first in honor. And then he kind of explains what he means by this through this series of uh, prepositions. Uh, prepositions are words that kind of show a relationship uh, to another thing. Uh, and so Paul kind of praises Jesus with these prepositions here in verse 16. He goes on to explain Jesus's relationship to creation. He says, everything in creation is by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Everything in the universe, everything that was made, was made through him. That's what John 1 says. Even the invisible parts of creation. Let's just think about that for a second, because this blows my mind. There's a part of creation that we can see, the visible part of creation. And there's this whole other part of creation that we don't even know about called the invisible part of creation. That's where Paul starts talking about like thrones, powers, dominions, authorities, angels. You know, the, the, the stuff in the Old Testament where, um, you know, uh, 
God and his people are kind of standing uh, by, I think it's Jericho, and then the angel opens the servant of God's eyes, and he sees like all these like flaming armies standing around like with God's people. That's the invisible part of creation. There is so much to this world, so much to this universe that we don't even see, that we can't even put our hands on. And Paul is saying, Jesus is in charge of all of that. All of that was created by him, through him, and for him. What this means is if the universe is a house, the cosmos was a a house, Jesus is the architect, Jesus is the builder, And he's the one who lives in the house. Not only that, he's the one who's maintaining the house. He's the one who comes by and, you know, makes sure everything's working. He's the one where it's broken. He's going to fix it. He has the home warranty. Jesus is everything. And it says in verse 17, he holds all things together. In summary, Jesus, the God-man, is before all things And he glues everything together. He's the abiding principle of the entire universe. He's the goal and the end of all things. All things spring forth at his command and they will return to him at his command. This is how Hebrews 1 says it. I love this. God appointed Jesus, his son, the heir of all things. Through whom, through Jesus, he also created the world. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And, this is amazing, he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. All that God does in relation to the world, creating, ruling, upholding by his providential care, all that is done by Jesus. Why does the world keep spinning? Why is there still breath in your lungs? Why did the sun come up this morning? Because Jesus said, do it again. When awful things happen in the world, I think so often we ask the why questions. Uh, Why did this happen? Uh, What's the cause behind it? That's what kind of politicians argue about, right? And they're like, well, if we know why, then we come up with the right policy decision, and then we can kind of fix these things. Uh, But I think a better and a more satisfying question when we look at the hard things in the world is not the why question, it's the who question. Let me tell you what I mean. A friend of mine... um, told me this story about how he met the Lord. Um, I met him. He's an RUF campus minister in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And he was telling me this story. Uh, He used to be a drug dealer. He used to be involved in all kinds of different shady stuff. And the way he describes it, he was like, I was a bad dude. Like I was a bad person. Like people were scared of me and they should have been scared of me. And um, he had this daughter And he didn't really see his daughter very much. She was four years old. But every now and then, while his mom was keeping his daughter, he would kind of pick her up and he'd take her to go buy shoes or something, like using his drug money and stuff. And then he'd like take her to the store or buy her candy or something. Then he'd drop her off at her mom's house. And so one time he was driving the car with his four-year-old daughter. 
and she's kind of sitting in the car seat in the back and she looks through the rear view mirror at him and she says, dad, why don't you love God? God loves you. And he said, "Uh, honey, God doesn't love people like me. I'm a bad person. And she said, listen to this. This is so wise. No, God does love bad people. He sent Jesus to die for bad people. And so he's like, he says he's driving and now he's furious at his daughter because he's like, who told her this stuff? And he's looking, he's talking to her, kind of yelling at her through the rear view mirror. I don't know, parents, if you've ever had that experience where you're trying to have a discussion through the rear view. And he says, okay, if God loves me, why was I born to a poor family? Why did the kids who lived in the neighborhood next to me have all this stuff? Why did my friend die? Why did all this difficult stuff happen? Why? why? If God loves me, why does my life look the way it is? And this is what she said. She said, because Jesus. And he was like, what? And she said, because Jesus. Because Jesus can fix it. You see, sometimes the why question isn't the best question to be asking. The why question doesn't help us make sense. But if we will answer the who question, if we'll see that it's all because of Jesus. He's the one who is holding our lives in his hands. He's the one who's actually in control. He's the one that can do something to fix it. Who? Because Jesus. Jesus is control, and Jesus is committed to fixing it all. Jesus is handling all of creation, and he's handling all of recreation. Let's move on to the the recreation, shall we? Verse 18, we see that the, the work of new creation, everything necessary for the redemption, for the reconciliation, for the restoration of all things, is being accomplished by Jesus. Jesus is fully handling the work of the new creation. Once again, Paul makes some opening statements about Jesus, and then he's going to expand upon them. And these are, again, bold statements. Verse 18, Jesus is the head of the church, and then Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That phrase, head of the church, that that is stressing Jesus' ruling over God's new people. Right, he's transitioning, now he's looking at kind of all of creation, and then right on the seam of creation and new creation is the church. Right in this place where the, where the ages overlap is God's new people, the church. The church are the ones who are the tip of the spear in the renewal of all things. Do you see that? Do you believe that about the church? The church is actually part of the new creation that's living in the old creation. And Jesus is in charge of the church. Jesus is intimately connected. He's organically connected to the church. And he has the place of preeminence over the church. He's the one who calls the shots. He's the head. Now, a body with several heads would be a very sick body and a very confused body. 
if you're coming into the church, you're recognizing that you're not in charge. When you come in as a member of the church, you're recognizing that you don't have sole authority over your life. That you're a member of a body, not the head of the body. The one who rules, the one who speaks is Christ. And so you come under his authority. Jesus is the head of the church, so he has preeminence in the new creation. But then Paul makes this other statement, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And when Paul says that, I think he's doing something really interesting. He's reaching back, and I believe that he's quoting the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation of the first five books of Moses. You know, so um, when people started speaking Greek, all these Jewish scholars got together and uh, they made a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so that was uh, the Old Testament that a lot of the early members of the church grew up learning and reading. And so I think Paul's quoting Genesis here because the first words of Genesis in the Greek Old Testament are en arhe, in the beginning. And then Paul says, Jesus is the arhe. Jesus is the beginning. He is the new Genesis. He is the creator. He's the recreator. He's the new creator. He's the guy who makes the new creation, just as he was the guy who made the old creation. And then he connects that idea, that new Genesis idea, to this another firstborn phrase. And he says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, remember, firstborn has this idea of kind of first in rank, but it also can have this idea of kind of first in order, right? The firstborn son is the, the first son, the one who has priority in time, not just priority in importance. Well, Jesus actually has both. He both rules over the dead, and he's the first person to conquer the grave, He's the first person to break free from the power of the dead. He, we have in Jesus the first fruits of the new harvest of resurrected people. We look at Jesus and we see his resurrected body and we go, that's what's going to happen to everyone who is connected to Jesus. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. But he is also the ruler. He's the conqueror of death itself. How did this conquering happen? Paul gives us a summary of the gospel in verse 19. He says, the conquering happened through the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, incarnation. And then through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus released a power that set these locked up gears into motion where the old order of things is passing away and the new creation is here and is coming. And the one person that accomplished that is Jesus. No one else did that. Jesus did that. Jesus handled all of that. Now, that's a big statement. I know. Remember, Paul is dealing with people who don't want to reject Jesus, but they're looking for kind of supplementary saviors. They're looking to get, you know, hey, we've kind of 
passed the test, I guess, but now we need some extra credit. Um, And so they're going to go outside of Jesus to get the things that they feel like are lacking in Jesus. But Paul is saying there is no reconciliation outside of Jesus. Only in him does the fullness of God dwell. Jesus has to have first place. Jesus has to handle all of your life or he doesn't handle any of it. Paul is saying only Jesus is worthy and able to secure your salvation. This is what I think uh, John is talking about in Revelation. This is what I think Revelation chapter 5 is depicting. And I don't know if you remember this scene, but uh, John's there in the throne room of God. And uh, there's this scroll. And the scroll is written on both sides and it's sealed with seven seals. So no one can look into it. No one can read it. No one can break open the seals. And the scroll represents God's purposes for human history. It it represents his covenant with man and his eternal judgments and his decrees to create and to redeem and judge. All of that is on the scroll. And nobody can make sense of it. No one can handle it because no one can open the scroll and read it. It's sealed with these seals. And there's no one in heaven, no one in the invisible creation, and there's no one in the visible creation who's able to break open the scroll and execute the plan, let alone make sense of it. And there's this buildup because every creature in the throne room of God is crying out. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8 about the creation all kind of groaning in eager expectation. They're going, how long is this going to go on? Won't anyone open the scroll and make sense of things and set everything right? And then finally someone says, hey, there is someone. There is someone who's worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you're expecting to see this conquering kind of kingly figure, right? Like kind of King David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then John looks and on the throne, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. It actually looks like the corpse of a lamb. It's a lamb that looks like it's been slain, but the lamb is alive. And the lamb takes the scroll with the seven seals and cracks it open. And he enacts the judgments of God. Only the lamb is worthy and able to open up the scroll to read the story of your life and make sense of it. Only the lamb is able to read the entire story of human history and set it right. The lamb is Jesus. He was slain and he opens the scroll and all of heaven sings, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now, the question is, do you believe that? I mean, Jesus walked on the earth. He he began this work of new creation. And from the very moment he came on the earth, the creation bowed down before him. The shepherds knew it. The angels knew it. The sun and the moon and the stars knew it. The the demons and the kind of principalities and powers, they knew it and they were terrified of him and they did whatever he told them to do. The wind and the waves knew it. Blindness and sickness and leprosy knew it. 
Death itself knew it? Or he called Lazarus out of the tomb? Are we really going to look for healing and power outside of this man? Is there anything he cannot do? Death and the grave itself could not hold him. And so what Paul is saying, why would you possibly want to add something to what he has done? How could you possibly make him more powerful by adding something to him? If you add to him, you subtract from him. You come to him and to him alone. Now, most of us, we don't walk around kind of doubting Jesus's ability to forgive our sins, I think, if we're Christians, because we say these things and we know, oh, no, no, he died for my sins on the cross. But sometimes people will say, or churches will say something like this. Now, Jesus did his part. Now, you do your part. Uh, Jesus's death kind of gets you 99% of the way to there, and here's what you have to add to it to kind of enact it and make it work. You have to add your sincere faith. You have to believe with all of your heart. And the question is, how sincere do I have to be? Am I sincere enough? Have I really believed in Jesus with, with all of my heart? Do you see where the problem is? If you have to add anything, you can never be sure that you've added enough, right? Or some people will say, yeah, Jesus has kind of died for everything, but here's what you have to do. You also have to add like the merits of the saints. This is what the medieval Catholic church said. And also, you know, it's not enough for Jesus just to pray for you. You also have to have like kind of Mary pray for you and you can like have all these other saints kind of pray for you too. And it's like Jesus plus this kind of, you know, cast of characters, they're gonna kind of get you into heaven and they're gonna get you out of purgatory and they're gonna secure your salvation. And what Paul is saying, no, it's just Jesus that does it. If you add to him, you subtract from him. Jesus' blood reconciled all of it. He paid it all like we, sing, like we sing in the song, which means there's nothing left for us to pay. We just receive it and believe it. Now, that's the first trap that we fall into. It's, it's just kind of thinking we add something um, to Jesus' death. But the other trap is more subtle because most of us don't go around kind of wearing our fallenness as a sense of guilt right, that needs to be kind of atoned for by Jesus's work or by someone else's work. Most of us walk around wearing our fallenness as a sense of unworthiness, as a sense of uh, not enoughness. And so we don't really go around looking for salvation. We go on and we wake up in the morning and we go, what do I need to be okay? What do we need to really feel like my life is enough? And we kind of fill in the blank with work. I need to kill it at my work this week. Uh, uh, Friendships, I need people to think well of me. And then I'll feel like I'm enough. Then I'll feel like I'm okay. Um, I need pleasure today. I need to be free from pain today. I need to have a certain body shape. Um, I need to have that next purchase. I mean, fill in the blank. Whatever it is, that thing that you're striving for, that thing that you feel like, yeah, Jesus is fine and he gets me most of the way there, but I don't feel enough without this other thing. What is that? That's your supplemental savior is what that is. And Paul is saying, you come to Jesus with all of it. Come to him with all of your need, 
with all of your unworthiness, with all of your guilt, with all of your shame, all of that, and he will hold it all together and he will reconcile it all and bring peace to all of you through his blood shed on the cross. All of that is included in the all of this that it's talking about, all things. Your sins and also that feeling of not enoughness. So what Paul is saying, come to him and stop wearing yourself out with supplemental saviors. So Jesus is coming to you and to me this morning, just like he came to the woman at the well. I don't know if you remember that, uh, the, the woman in John chapter four. She'd been running from husband to husband. She was desperately hungry for, for someone to accept her, someone to love her, someone to welcome her in, someone to give her that sense of beauty and dignity. And she was repeatedly rejected, repeatedly let down. She was hungry and thirsty for love. And she couldn't find anyone to truly love her. But listen to what Jesus says to her. If you knew the gift of God, woman, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And everyone who drinks of this water, this water that I give you, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you believe that? Will you come to Jesus? He is enough. He is worthy. He is able. Bring all your sin to me, he's saying. Bring all of your thirst for life and love and healing and wholeness to me and let me satisfy it. Jesus is saying, if you knew the generosity of God, if you knew who I am, you would never try to seek to be satisfied outside of me. He's saying, come to me, thirsty person. Come to me, sinner. Drink deeply and thirst no more. Jesus Christ, the cosmic Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption, is holding all of it in his hand. He is handling it all. And unless we know him and unless we see him, we'll never be able to make sense of the rest of our lives. John Newton says this, what think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. We cannot be right in any of it unless we think rightly of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you ask that you would give us uh, the faith to believe that you really are holding all of this world in your hands and holding all of our lives and all of the kind of healing project of the new creation in your hands. You can handle it. And so, Father, we let go of the burden of trying to handle it ourselves. We let go of our kind of self-salvation projects. Father, we want to let go of these kind of supplemental saviors that we cling to. And Lord, would you help us lay all of our burdens on you and the burdens that we're not strong enough to lay on you yet? Lord, would you give us strength to trust you and to grow to be strong enough to lay those down too? Lord Jesus, thank you for holding all of it and for being enough. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.